again, folks, and once again we gather together as God's people, uh, his community of Christ followers. And I'm glad you are here uh, for the second Gould Holiness Lecture with Reverend uh, Anthony Holloman. And uh, Wednesday he teased us and sort of left the story hanging a bit as we... Uh, as he uh, shared with us the vision of Isaiah uh, with Uzziah the king who was passed. Uh, the country is in the danger of turmoil, uncertainty, and fear. And there Isaiah's vision of God still reigning, lifted up, uh, sitting at his throne, and still in control. Uh, but Reverend Holman said that that was but the beginning. That Isaiah's vision, that experience is but the beginning. So we're looking forward to hearing more about what happens afterwards. And you teased us by going back to Isaiah chapter 5 as well. And yesterday, in the colloquium, we enjoyed that, a conversation uh, with him as well. Uh, thinking about that European context, a little bit of your own history. And thanks for sharing. And thanks for uh, inviting us to dream again about the possibility of holiness. And really appreciate sort of the trajectory you're drawing us, leading us towards. And I want to talk more about that. Uh, certainly in class and with you personally. Reverend Holloman uh, is the uh, academic uh, dean at European Nazarene College in Busingen, Germany, and he's also a lecturer in church history and historical theology and pastoral ministry. And once again, we are grateful that you are here, and we welcome you. Please come again to speak to us today. Thank you. Let's give him a warm applause. Thank you, folks. In our first uh, session, we explored the Song of the Vineyard, where God communicates His judgment over His people. It's a decisive point in the history of Israel, a decisive point for the ministry of Isaiah. The, vi the vineyard is not producing the good fruit, and God has decided to withdraw His protection. But this is not all. Towards the end of chapter 5, the arrival of a hostile army is announced, coming like a whirlwind, roaring like a lion. So chapter 5 describes the myth the people made of life, describes God's judgment and destruction that is to come. And then as we turn to chapter 6, there is a completely different picture. In chapter 6, a completely different dimension of reality is revealed to Isaiah. Seraphim flying around communicating to him that the entire earth is still full of the glory of God. Isaiah, who lived in a world where God was pushed to the margin, where Corruption filled society. Corruption and deceit ruled. And yet Isaiah receives the message that God is still in control. The entire earth is still full of the glory of the Lord. And it's this confrontation of two dimensions, two realities, two perspectives, if you want to call it like that, and Isaiah, as the representative of the sinful dimension, realizes that his world of sin cannot survive this confrontation. 
it will be completely consumed by the holiness of God. It's like fire that evaporates, or by, like water that evaporates by fire, by the heat. It disappears. And Isaiah realizes, we're going into ruin. This is destruction. We cannot stand in the holiness of God. And it's one of the seraphim that then flies to him, touches him with this burning coal, and says these calming words. It's all right. It's okay. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. And that's the moment when Isaiah begins to calm down. He can concentrate again. He can focus on what's happening. He focuses on the dimension that is revealed and now he hears God speak. Who will I send? I've heard many sermons, read many interpretations of these facets that interpret it like a personal experience of sanctification, an uplifting spiritual encounter with the holiness of God. I think a lot of these interpretations, they, they miss the point and make the experience, as I said, the goal. As if God wants to provide a spiritual high. But I think we are confusing then the means with the end. And make the experience, which is very likely to happen in our experiential culture, we make the experience the goal. John Wesley, the 18th century father of Methodism and later of the American Holiness Movement and our Holiness Movement, in, in, in various debates concerning what he called Christian perfection, he, he tried to explain what he meant. One of the questions that, or several of the questions they arose were, Okay, what is this kind of experience? Is everything that we gain in holiness the result of experiences or a particular experience? Is it part of a gradual growth? And if we think of it as a certain moment, is it something we need to strive for? And when we've reached this point, what will happen afterwards? Have we arrived? Will we sin no more? Will there be further growth? But what is then the difference? And in one of these debates, John Wesley came up with a very short answer. The question was, will the believer after entire sanctification, after Christian perfection, still be, be growing? And his answer was, the one perfected in love may grow in grace far swifter than he did before. What Wesley says is that the holy person, the sanctified person, will change with a more rapid pace and will be transformed more rapidly, more easier than before. In other words, the holy person will be less resistant to the transforming work of God. It will be easier for God to work in his life it's the holy person that needs less time to say, I'm sorry. 
I messed up. That holy person will have less excuses. The holy person will find it easier or will have more patience than before dealing with a difficult person. That's what Wesley is saying about holiness. The one perfected in holiness may grow in grace far swifter than he did before. And I think that's the experience of the burning coal that <coughs> what happened to Isaiah. It calmed him down. He was no longer preoccupied with his own emotions, his own feelings, and he was able to listen. The issue was hearing God speak, not having a wonderful experience. But we need to continue. What happened to Isaiah when he said, Here I am, send me. This is the message that Isaiah received. Go and tell these people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of these people insensitive, their ears dull, that their eyes are dim, because otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. You heard it correctly. The message of Isaiah is to harden the hearts of the people. And these words seem almost impossible for us to really understand. It seems to go against the nature of God. How is it possible for God to desire that the hearts of the people will be hardened so that they hear the message but do not listen? How in the world is that possible? I think here it's important that we take into consideration chapter 5 in an attempt. It's nothing more than an attempt to understand this message and this call of Isaiah. As we said, God has spoken his judgment over the vineyard. Destruction is coming. The invading armies are already on their way. Crisis is on the horizon. And it cannot be stopped. And we could ask the question, what is there still to preach when the decision has been made? What hope can we communicate when God has decided to let destruction take place? I think the best way to interpret this assignment connected to chapter 5 is not to see it as a destruction or an instruct or description of, of how Isaiah needs to preach, but more the predicted result of his ministry. In other words, God is commissioning Isaiah to preach, but he lets him know you will not see any result. Speak, but the people will not listen. Now, who wants to have a ministry like that? I'm going to call you to something, but you will not succeed. We don't like that at all. We want to have success. 
And it's no surprise that even Isaiah says, Okay, Lord, how long do I need to preach this? And God's response is even more demotivating. He says, Until cities are devastated and without inhabitants. Houses without people and the land is utterly desolate. God is dead serious about his judgment. And Isaiah is more like an executioner of judgment than a preacher of hope. And he compares Judah with a tree. And not only says this tree will be cut down, but it will be burned and only a stump remaining. If chapter 5 was depressive, this call of Isaiah is even more. But it's the last words of chapter 6 where we see a glimmer of hope. The holy seat is its stump. It's this final sentence that points towards the later chapters in the book of Isaiah where a remnant will emerge out of the ashes. A shoot will spring forth out of the stem of Jesse. Just as Isaiah experienced the life after what he assumed would be his death, his message is life after the predicted destruction. Recently I found a perfect example of this metaphor by contemporary, contemporary science. Because of the melting permafrost, Russian scientists have found a 32,000-year-old seat that was encased by ice. And they've been able to let this seat germinate. And, as the news said, they were able to regenerate an extinct Siberian plant. 32,000 years old. This is the kind of hope that Isaiah is proclaiming. The destruction will come. It may seem to be complete and final, but yet there is the remnant, like a seed of an extinct plant, that will come back to life. After our exploration of Isaiah 5 and 6, we need to pull various of these strings together and apply it to our leading question, now why holiness? Why is it so important? And how should holiness look like in a time of decline and crisis that we're facing today as well? In my theological journey, I have been struggling with trying to find a biblical paradigm for ministry of a marginalized church in a secularized context. A lot of times when we talk about church, we still come up with the narrative and the paradigm of the book of Acts. It's the paradigm of a young and vibrant and growing church. And we're going to go out and we're going to reach the world for Christ. But that's not our experience. Because the church, especially in Europe, is not young. It's old. It's not growing. And it's not vibrant. 
But as I said in my first lecture, what if, what if we picture the church as the vineyard of Isaiah 5? The church not producing fruit, and as God predicted, is under His judgment. What if we see our call as Isaiah's call to labor but without result? Could such a paradigm help us interpret our experience and give our ministry still meaning when the fruit and the result of our ministry is rather limited? Before we continue, I want to make three things very clear so that you do not misunderstand me. I'm not seeking a paradigm for all of Christianity. I'm looking for a paradigm for the Western Church, but more specifically for the church in which I work in Europe. Because we need to say on a global scale, Christianity is not in decline. It's just a Western phenomenon. Secondly, I'm not looking for a paradigm for individual churches, but for the Western church in general, all churches taken together. I still rejoice and I'm happy to see individual churches that are thriving, but unfortunately these are the exceptions and we need to be aware of that. Thirdly, I'm not seeking a paradigm that is permanent, but one that helps us face the realities and the, the challenges of the 21st century in Europe. We could call it, to use other metaphors or in images of the Old Testament, a paradigm for the 40 years in the desert or the 70 years of exile or however long it will take. The paradigm that comes to us from Isaiah 5 and 6 is one of judgment and renewal through the critical few, the remnant. And it relates to the established church that is without growth, whatever we try. You may think working out of such a paradigm is not really encouraging, it's not really motivating, it's rather pessimistic. Well, the more I read scripture, I find a lot of things that are not really happy stuff in, in the Bible. Think, for instance, of the apocalyptic sermons of Jesus. Think of the book of Revelation. We tend to shy away from these pieces of, and these parts of Scripture because we, we think it's too depressing and we want to avoid anything of any kind of end-time paranoia. But these sermons of Jesus and the book of Revelation provide a similar paradigm of judgment, tribulation, and persecution. And they may be re more relevant to our situation than we ever thought before. The paradigm that we are exploring does not mean that God is absent. Isaiah received a vision that even in this situation of decay and labor without the result, the earth is still full of the glory of God. But what becomes essential for us is that we develop the eyes to see how God works in a time 
sits is this. What becomes clear, even when we continue reading in the book of Isaiah, it is that it are the individuals, the critical few that become the instrument of God, not the official organizations, not the institutions, because they are in crisis. God calls the individuals who minister more or less on their own. God is telling Isaiah, as to all the other prophets as well, the official religion of the temple institution is bankrupt and has failed. And God calls individuals. And we see that throughout Scripture. In times of crisis, God selects individuals. Moses was singled out to lead the people out of a situation of slavery and exploitation. The individual judges were called by God when the country was overrun by hostile troops who robbed the country of its economic resources. Samuel was called when the nation was in danger. Paul was called when the church seemed to be locked up within the own Jewish context. And all of these persons, like the prophets, in their ministry remained somewhat independent. Moses never became the hero of his people. The judges, after their successes, just disappeared, went back home. No one heard about them anymore. Samuel remained critical about the desires of his own people to have a king. And Paul continued to remain somewhat separate from the core of the apostles. And besides, he never made it to become a pope. Peter became the first pope. So these, these individuals called by God remain doing their thing on their own. But what we see is that they become catalysts of change and transformation for the sake of a far bigger group. Paul was called to help the church get out of a narrow-minded mindset that limited the Gospels to those of Jewish heritage. Moses was called to to lead his people and, as it is clear in Exodus, to make the name of God known to all of the earth. And the best example from the Old Testament is Abraham, who was called away from his family, from his heritage, into a new country for him and his seeds to be a blessing to all the people. So what we see is that God works through individuals in times of crisis not to take them out and say, you're safe now, but he calls them for the sake, for the well-being of all of the other peoples. And we see this happening in Isaiah as well. When we pick up the, 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 the theme of the seat, the holy seat that is in the burnt trump of the tree, the remnant, the critical view, or the small community of followers of Isaiah... They are not just the lucky ones who have survived Judgment Day. But they become the means of God's work of renewal. In chapter 11, 
Isaiah gives a picture of what will happen. And he stays with the metaphor of the trump. He says in chapter 11, Then a shoot will will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the bread of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins, and faithfulness the belt about his waist. But the picture continues of the new order that will be established by this new ruler, by this new community. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. Verse 9, And they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I hope you see what is happening when we, when we put these various verses, or these various chapters of Isaiah together. The people had failed living the covenant life. The vineyard was not producing the good fruits. God sends his judgment. Execution will happen. Destruction will come. There will be decline and decay. But it's a remnant. A critical few, the holy seed will survive. And out of this remnant, out of this stem, something new will emerge. It's a new ruler. It's a new order. A ruler, a community full of the Spirit of God. And this rule will be a blessing to the entire earth. The whole earth will be full of the understanding of the Lord. A new order, a new way of relating to each other. Not just among humans, but even the natural order. All of that will emerge out of this remnant that has gone through the judgment. All of the earth full of the knowledge of the Lord. That is how God works in the paradigm of judgment and renewal. He will execute judgment. Not only later, but judgment already in the here and now. It's the result of the mess that we've made. But the hope for the future is with the critical view, the remnant. And they are, like I said, not just the lucky survivors like the people in the Ark of Noah singing praises, oh, we're in the boat, we're safe. And they look out of the window and see all the rest of creation perish. That's not the metaphor. It's the critical view 
that become the first fruit, the means of a renewed future. When you think about it, this is the paradigm of the cross and the resurrection. The paradigm of the dying of Christ and the resurrection by the Father. Judgment and renewal. We come back to our question, so why holiness? And we can now make it a little bit more specific and say, so why holiness when we are experiencing decay and decline? Why holiness in the paradigm of judgment and renewal through the critical view? As I've said before, it's not to provide an uplifting experience that helps us keep going, forget the misery around us. If we focus on that, holiness becomes a drug, but it doesn't change anything. God needs individuals. God is looking for individuals. God is looking for the critical view. People like Isaiah, who are fully aware of the serious state we're in, fully aware of what time it is, the mess we've made of the earth, society, and the church. And God is calling these individuals with this question, who will I send? And he's waiting for this response, send me, here I am. People who are willing to be part of a minority, people who are willing to be a remnant, that functions like a threat going through a desert, through a difficult time, into a renewed and better future. People who are willing to be the first fruits of renewal. People willing to move out of their comfort zone, out of the box, to become agents of God's judgment and renewal for the sake of God's creation. Holiness means that we become such individuals, such catalysts. Holiness is the means in order to become such a person. Such individuals need to be able to hear the voice of God like Isaiah heard it. Need to be able to see the divine perspective on life and not be fooled by whatever humans say or whatever TV or the newspapers or whatever the people acclaimed in society say, but they need to hear what God is saying, how God is looking at our worlds. And they need to be able to abide in Christ divine in order to bear fruit. So why holiness? Because our world... And our church is in crisis. And God is looking for individuals who are willing to become catalysts of change and agents of transformation. We all know how critical it is to have the right doctor when we're dealing with serious and complicated health issues. Several years ago, my wife, who had been dealing with several health issues, 
heard a person talk about a specialist and it triggered her interest. She asked for the name. She made an appointment in the hope that this would be the right doctor for her. She made the appointment and immediately felt the difference. This was a person that listened, a person that respected her, able to give encouragement. Interestingly, the treatment stayed the same. But it was a completely different kind of treatment. After one of her visits, Wilma, my wife, she said to me, you know, this doctor has been such a blessing to me, it wouldn't surprise me if one day I find out that this person is a Christian. Which is not as common in Europe. You know, the church is in decline. During another visit, the conversation was about her job. And Wilma said she was teaching New Testament Greek at the college. And then her doctor said, and that was <coughs> what Wilma was expecting. Well, not exactly like this. She said, you know, I started out studying theology. But I could not master Greek. So she somewhat envied my wife. She said, well, that's not that difficult. I even envy her for that. But, but then she said, but then I decided to become a doctor and minister to the people in this way. And Wilma thought, wow, you're probably more successful in your ministry than as a pastor of a local congregation. It's a doctor like this, I think, is an example of the saints we need in the 21st century. In the past, our strategy as a church over all generations has been that the saints we had, we locked them up in monasteries. Or we kept them hidden inside our church communities. And our strategy was like, come on to us and see the saints that we have experience the blessing that they could become to you but our world has changed and we need to have a different kind of strategy we need to have our saints outside of the safe boundaries of the church outside of the safe boundaries of the Christian institutions and they need to be in all levels of society we need to have our saints as individuals who stand out in their professions. They need to become the critical few that make a difference in our world. The minority with a distinctive influence. And I think it's the ministry of the church to build up these saints, to empower them, to encourage them, and to send them out into society. In closing, I would like to challenge you students you're studying at a college that stands in a holiness tradition you're preparing to become a good teacher a doctor a researcher an administrator a businessman a pastor a nurse or whatever your your hopes are for your future you need the knowledge you need the skills but keep in mind that we have plenty of good professionals but we lack the right professionals 
those with a distinctive influence in, in society and in church who like Isaiah 11 decide with fairness for the, for the afflicted of the earth people with the spirit of wisdom and understanding people who do righteousness the holiness college is the place not just to become a good but to become a saintly and the right professional for the time in which we live.